So this week, we come to this point in Colossians where we're going to be talking about marriage. And marriage, by God's design, is sweet. Aaron, my wife, reminded me this week of an Andrew Peterson song, uh, My One Safe Place. And in that song, the lyrics, he talks about the comfort and security that he has in his relationship with his wife. And uh, here's a couple lines. You're my oasis, the eye of the hurricane. Right? The idea of this calm within the storm of the world around us. Right? A marriage under the redemption of Christ is a safe place in the wilderness, in the midst of a fallen world. When, uh, when my wife and I were married, I remember the theme at the reception was one of fruitfulness and specifically in light of the fruit of the Spirit. And the idea being that uh, our marriage and our life together would bear fruit in light of the Spirit's work in our lives. And uh, I remember the, the wedding cake that we had had fruit on it. And I still think that's the, the best wedding cake I've ever seen. And uh, the um, prayer that we had and even starting our relationship would be that we would... Uh, be of more usefulness together for God's kingdom than we would be apart. That that would be our purpose as a couple and in marriage. And we wanted our relationship to be shaped by God's design and uh, submitted to Christ. And over the years, we've sometimes failed and stumbled and at times hurt one another and sometimes even in humorous ways I remember one incident. Um, we were driving years ago on the west end of Fort Worth on the highway, and it was um, it was summertime, and I remember that because it was around the time of VBS. And uh, Aaron, sitting in the car, said, "I have something really important I need to tell you." And so we're driving at this point by a large church that had some signs on it related to their VBS. And what Erin wanted to tell me was that she was pregnant. And me, in my obliviousness, looked over at this church, and on top of it, there was a gigantic blow-up sumo wrestler on top of Birchman Baptist, right? Yes. And... And so I pointed at it and said, look, a sumo wrestler. And her response was, inside her mind was, well, that conversation's not happening right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. So that took a few days before we, we got that one resolved. But as the years go by, I see more and more how marriage by God's design is sweet. And it is a refuge in the wilderness. For us. But marriage under the curse of sin is painful. And I'm I'm sure you've all seen broken marriages, and many of you have experienced that firsthand in your lives. And the impacts are devastating. It can be hard to turn emotions around at each side blaming the other. And the impacts to the children can be tremendous. And that conflict is not new. It goes back to the first marriage, 
Right? The curse from Genesis 3 reads, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. But thankfully, that's not God's design for marriage. Right? In, in Colossians 3, we've been discussing what a new life in Christ looks like. And now in the closing of chapter 3 and moving into chapter 4, Paul moves on to some specific life examples. He's applying what we've already covered in the context of husbands and wives, parents and children, and masters and servants. And Paul takes these social contexts, and this week we're going to look more closely at marriage, specifically. In in Colossians 3, verses 18 and 19, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord, and husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. So looking at Colossians 3, this new life is centered upon Christ and that changes the way we relate as a community. Right? We grow together in that community, being built upon God's word. In verses 15 through 17, we learn that the peace of Christ should rule our hearts. That the word of Christ must dwell richly in us. That the glory of Christ must be our aim in both word and deed. And when those things are true of us, relationships will vastly differ from those in the world. And through our new life in Christ, relationships will be transformed to honor him and keep him at the center. Okay, so let's start by looking at how we reflect Christ in our marriages. Right, the foundation here is more than just a contractual agreement It's a bond that has permanence and mutual benefit and responsibilities. So let's look at Genesis 1. We'll start Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So we see here a foundation of who we are. This this lays a foundation for for who men and women are as created by God. And then in chapter 2, we get a little more information. Starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. So, a couple things, or a few things we can get from here. One is that she is made as a helper suited to him. They're made for one another. Right? It's, it's a fit. The woman is created from his flesh. There is a one flesh relationship. So when, when he says bone of my bones, it means that Adam is to treat her tenderly as he would care for his own self. And that's reinforced later in Ephesians. Right? Adam is also to cleave to his wife. They're told to hold fast and become one flesh. They're to be united in every way, united in purpose in all aspects of their life. And so, moving on to Ephesians, chapter 5, starting in verse 22, we see that marriage is to reflect Christ and the church. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So there we see an exposition of Genesis 2 by Paul. And we see that Christ is the advocate for the church. He intercedes on our behalf. And we are united with Christ and find our identity in him. And the marriage relationship is to image Christ in the church. And so Paul reminds us also that it's a one flesh relationship. Tying back to Genesis 2. In light of this, we are to care for one another in a way that we would care for ourselves. Right? Husbands and wives, you should pray for one another. Right? That unity of purpose, that desire to grow in godly character, and it should be true of our marriages. And one way we can implement that is by praying for one another. But there's a bond here that is greater than basic relationships. It's a covenant and we sometimes talk about our covenant responsibilities before God, right? When we use that word, we mean that it's a bond with a formal significance. Which is why we have ceremonies to formalize those relationships. We make them public. 
Some examples of this include baptism, where we're formally declaring before the world our union with Christ and our identification with him. But the marriage ceremony is the same. It's formally committing to have and to hold, to love and to cherish. And these bonds formalize that relationship in a way that has permanence and is announced before the community. And these relationships also entail certain responsibilities. So the way we view the marriage relationship is also important. It's not merely, what can I get out of this? And certainly joy is an element of a fulfilling relationship. But the richness of these relationships really come from the strength of those bonds. And in the case of marriage, the relationship itself should reflect God's work among us and our role as God's people. So Ben, preaching several weeks ago from Matthew, said, People want the benefits of marriage without the cross-carrying call of Christ. For the relationship to flourish, husband and wife must take up their cross and serve one another for the benefit and joy of the other. So we should grow in service for one another. And again, that's something we can be praying for in our own lives. But what should this look like? In our society today, people have outlined different models for how husbands and wives should relate. On the one side, you have the egalitarian view. Feminism in the 20th century brought about a new egalitarian ethic in our society. And the idea is that everyone is perfectly equal and there's no differences between men and women. And they will point to a passage like Galatians 3, verse 28, where Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. And there Paul is emphasizing the equal footing that we have in the gospel. And egalitarians extend it to all of life and social structure as well. In contrast, others take what you might call a hyper-headship view. The feminists may call this patriarchy. Uh, It's headship run amok, where the absolute rule and authority of the husband is emphasized, even to the point of control or manipulation of the wife, and it opposes its rules by force, even if those rules are arbitrary. The tragic end of this in real life is often a rejection of authority by those who have seen it abused. But those are not the only two options. A third option has been advocated. It's sometimes called the complementarian view. Now, some who claim complementarianism can sound like one of the other two views. So that can be confusing. Or sometimes they're attacked as if they were the view on the opposite side. So one side lobbing missiles at the other and lumping them in with the other side. And so the name is often misused and misrepresented, and that's, that's a shame. Because misusing the term adds confusion, and, uh, and that doesn't help. So really what the term is intending is to take into account both of these concepts at once. Because both passages, like Galatians 3.28 and Genesis 1, and also passages like Genesis 2, and Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. 
And so the genuine complementarian position provides a unique and biblical perspective. First, men and women are equal in value, created in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, Galatians 3, 28. And then second, men and women are created with unique giftings and purpose. And that purpose is fulfilled in complementary roles. And each has a responsibility that they bring to the relationship. That's Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3. Now, to understand what Paul is saying in Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians, we need to understand a little bit about Roman society as well. The Romans had a view that was closer to the hyperheadship view. And Christianity challenged that. So the passages in Scripture present a view that emphasized the image of God in each individual, which was emphasizing an equalizing force challenging the Roman view. And that's what Galatians 3 is addressing. At the same time, Paul also emphasized this one flesh union as a creation mandate. And Ephesians 5.31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh where he quotes Genesis 2. And the point there is that the unity and care and concern for one another is a creation mandate. And this, again, should be in contrast to the Roman world. And so Paul articulated complementary roles as well. And the idea is also addressed in 1 Peter 3. So we have to look at all the data and not just appeal to the passages that support our particular pre-existing position. Both sides have to be taken into account. Now, the New Testament authors were casting a vision of right order and submission under Christ. When I use the term right order, what I mean is in contrast to the disorder brought by the curse. So all Christians are addressed in Ephesians 521, where it says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. At the same time, the gospel has brought a certain liberation, emphasizing the equal value we have for Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Jesus Christ. We participate equally in Christ. And that's the point. It goes back to the image of God in us. We are all of equal value as human beings. So both right order under Christ and equal value in Christ are presented. And we live in rightly ordered relationships even as we all live under Christ's authority. And so that's the whole point of restoration brought through Christ's work and culminating in God's restoration of all things. right? That what was broken and distorted by the fall, these disordered relationships will be restored to right. Right? And that's what marriage is intended to image. And so Paul explicitly compares the relationship between husbands and wives to the relationship between Christ and the church. The point is that this is not just a subjugation, but instead it's a reflection of this covenantal relationship. It works when the relationship is brought under the headship of Christ. When each side is fulfilling their complementary roles to love and to be loved, to respect and be respected. 
And there's a lot of places in Scripture where we are challenged by the presence of two complementary perspectives to help us see a more well-rounded view. Where Scripture affirms multiple aspects at once, and these are not contradictions. They help us to avoid simplistic, one-sided interpretations that are ultimately destructive. So let's zoom out for a minute. I imagine that you have seen where someone accuses someone else of a logical contradiction before. How can you say that when last week you were saying something else? And rather than blindly extending criticism, it may be helpful to try to understand what the person is saying. Maybe we're not understanding their view fully if we're not getting how those two things fit together. So it can be easy to be overly reductionistic. And we can do this even with God's revealed word. One example is God's sovereignty and personal responsibility. Both are true. Both are in Scripture. And if your view excludes one, don't bend Scripture, but instead ask yourself, why does your view not fit the whole counsel of God? Another example is the authorship of Scripture by chosen men and by the Spirit. We should submit to God when we find these both ands in God's word. And here is one. Men and women are both made in the image of God. Both are in Christ. Both are equal value and worth. They are united in one flesh in marriage. And in God's created order, they fill complementary roles within the family. Husbands, love your wives. And wives... Live in deference to your husbands. But Paul goes even further in Ephesians 5, where he connects this bond of marriage to the relationship between Christ and the church. Right? This means that there's a commitment to one another. Each person seeks the best for the other person. It's going to be done in such a way that our relationships reflect Christ and the church. That's the goal of marriage, reflecting Christ and his relationship to his people. But what happens under the curse of sin? When there is disorder in the relationship, the man becomes impatient. This man wants his way. He has the upper hand so he can force what he wants. If things aren't going his way, then he pushes harder. And he becomes harsh. He's become bitter towards his wife. He then justifies this bitterness and he justifies the behaviors that he acts out against her. And this rough behavior hurts her deeply. He has unrealistic expectations in which she does not meet those. He becomes embittered against her. And this destroys their relationship. And then he may manipulate to get what he wants. Or he may seek retribution. He may call her out over small things. He has a short temper. He has become harsh. And her response may respond likewise. Or may respond by turning away. The husband who should have been 
Her advocate and protector has become her accuser. Let's think about that for a minute. Who is our advocate before the Father? Christ. Who is our accuser? The husband who is to image restoration and what is right and good in Christ now images everything involving the curse. And when the husband is controlling, demeaning, or harmful toward the wife, maybe harmful towards the children, submission does not mean obeying to the point of endorsing sin. The husband is not acting in love. He may even be sinfully encouraging his wife to sin or to act against her conscience. And such husbands may be controlling to prevent the wife from even getting help. Going to somebody who might be able to help her, even a a pastor or a counselor. This is not love. This is sin. And it's destructive because of the intimate nature of the marriage relationship between the husband and the wife. And in these cases, help may be needed to protect the wife. So what I've described here is a disordered relationship. There's other kinds of disordered relationships out there. But this is one. But God's creation mandate was for a loving one flesh relationship. Where there is a loving deference and care for one another. But look at what sin does. Look at the fall in Genesis 3. There's a pronounced curse in response to sin. One of those curses is your desire should be contrary to your husband. But he shall rule over you. Don't adopt the curse as your standard. Loving deference has been replaced by something else. A battle for control on one side. A desire for increased authority. And on the other side, a harsh and forced rule. And this curse shows that sin disorders our relationships. So the intended creation order is replaced with conflict. And that's what sin does. It takes God's intended design and it twists it into something destructive. Don't endorse it. The curse. Don't adopt the curse as your standard. Husbands, to the degree that outside of love you seek to rule over your wife, you're outside the will of God. Now compare that to Colossians 3, 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That's the restoration of the creation mandate. And it works when the whole relationship is submitted to Christ. So it's in stark contrast to the curse. And there is hope for restoration in Christ. Now what happens if one side seeks to follow scripture here and the other side does not? First, let's 
think about what believers are called to do. And then second, let's consider what has to be done in extreme situations. First, in difficult situations, God calls us to carry a cross even in difficult circumstances. And that's Peter's point in 1 Peter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. That point is there that we should conduct ourselves in a way that honors Christ, even when the other side may be acting in an unchristlike manner. And that can be hard. Especially in marriages where there's no break, there's no way to reduce tensions, and where misunderstandings can lead to additional relational strife. The severity of the situation makes a difference. At its best, submission to an earthly husband mirrors submission to Christ. But at its worst, Submission is replaced by something else entirely, a subjugation that is not founded in love. And that is why it's all the more important that husbands learn to truly love their wives just as Christ loved the church. So there are situations where the breakdown can become so destructive that that other people may need need to step into the life of the offending party to help them see sin in their life. In those situations, we support accountability, godly counsel, a goal of restoration. And that's the church being the church in any kind of situation that's difficult. But we have to be realistic here that these are disordered relationships. They don't reflect the model presented in Colossians 3. In extreme cases, the sin may be so great that one party may need to be protected from the other. Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 are not excuses for sin. The husband does not have an independent and arbitrary rule. His authority is in submission to Christ. So the marriage relationship works as the husband and wife both see their roles under Christ's authority. So here's some some takeaways Seek a rightly ordered relationship. Embrace relationship and the responsibilities that go with that relationship on both sides under Christ. When somebody sins, don't blame God for their sin. And don't use somebody else's sin as an excuse for your own sin. And when sin is severe and destructive, we take steps to protect those who are impacted and point the offender towards Christ. They're not living in love and the relationship is not reflecting God's design. Singles. Support godly marriages in the church. Point people towards God's design. And prepare your hearts to grow in grace such that these qualities would be manifested in your own life. Other passages apply both submission and love in other circumstances to the church in general. Right, so these are qualities that apply in any number of areas of our lives. Marriage was created by God's design to image Christ, yet we live with the reality of the curse of sin, and with, it, with that background in mind, let's look at the commands for wives in verse 18. 
Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Submission is disconcerting to the modern ear, isn't it? We think of it as an assault on our personal autonomy, but submission is not the same as abject subjugation. Rather, it's a mark of deference done in love, and the idea here is similar to be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5.21. That is given to the whole church. And some argue that these rules for social order in the New Testament, which are sometimes called household codes, should not be carried into our day. They contend that these codes were cultural and relegate them to the Roman era. And that we live in a different culture now, that it's not fair. Now, that characterization of the social ethic of the New Testament isn't accurate, though. Uh, It's actually more balanced than the social order of Roman society. The very idea of the value and worth of all individuals was radical in that day. Paul was arguing for a distinctively Christian perspective on how we should live in the world. It's more right to say that he's putting forth principles that can then be applied in any number of cultural contexts. And cultural application may vary, but we can't let that deny a clearly taught principle. The the relevant passages point us toward the idea of the equality of persons can coexist with different roles within relationships. They're actually two different things. Equal in value is who they are, and love and submission is what they do. The two sides are operating at two different levels. The essence of the person and how they function relationally. So a solid relationship has both. Right. Submit is used throughout the New Testament in a number of contexts. The same word is used in submitting to church officers in Titus 3. And to human institutions in 1 Peter 5. And in Ephesians 5, it compares this submission to submission to Christ. So there's a much broader application of submit throughout the New Testament, and it's not limited to this passage. In fact, both submission and love are commands given to individuals in the church in general. And these are things that should be done within our lives, but we find particular application of them within the marriage relationship. So the point is that God has ordered society for good. In Colossians, Paul is identifying normal obligations as citizens, family members, workers, in light of who we are in Christ. So the design is not just following the traditions of our society. What Paul and Peter lay out in these household codes is beyond the expectations of even the Roman society that they lived in. They're giving the church advice on how to live distinctively and in contrast to the Roman world. But the same goes for today. right? When Christian wives follow God's order and submit to their husbands, they're being countercultural. And they're also setting before the world the distinct order of their Lord and Creator. So look at Titus 2, where there's a general call for growth and maturity. And there's this active discipleship that's in contrast to the world. 
Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Take a look at Proverbs 31. That woman is strong, competent, trustworthy. Her husband considers her a blessing. The heart of her husband trusts in her. Proverbs 31 illustrates that submission is not ignorant, brainless, unengaged, fearful, coerced, or lazy. So let's talk a little bit about what submission means and what it doesn't mean. Submission means affirming him while not affirming sin. Affirmation does not mean stroking his ego in order to manipulate or to appease. It does mean to show loving support. Submission means following his direction and goals. Again, while not endorsing sin, it means to defer in the direction that he sets for the family. The wife can actively advise, encourage, provide insight, and that is a help to her husband. Submission means recognizing his responsibilities before God. See your marriage in light of God's purpose for your life together. Help your husband to fulfill his responsibilities and spiritual leadership. Submission means being available. Leave space in your life. Avoid overcommitment. To to follow means to have some level of flexibility in your life. Being a help and support means being active and engaged in a way that is a help to him. Submission means being trustworthy. Do what you say you will do. Follow through on your commitments. Be reliable. Submission means being active. Proverbs 31 shows that a woman can use her diverse gifts for the good of the marriage. Be industrious. Use the creative energy that God has given to you. This comes from an inner disposition that manifests itself relationally. John Piper, in defining submission in a reflection on 1 Peter 3, said, Submission is the defined calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and so to help carry it through according to her gifts. In that same reflection, Piper gives some thoughts on what submission is not, and so I've adapted them here. Submission is not always agreeing. The the wife has something to add to decisions and addressing issues as they arise, and she has a role to advise and help recognizing things that he may not see clearly. She's to have a disposition of submission, but she's also to be a help to him. Submission is not always, or is not avoiding, sorry, thinking critically. The wife can help the husband to think through critical issues, and sometimes she will be discerning in areas where he's just not attentive initially. Submission is not abdicating influence. Win him for Christ. In fact, that's kind of the whole point of 1 Peter 3. If your husband is not following the Lord, then by all means you're called to lovingly influence him to see and Savior Jesus Christ. Submission is not putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. 
don't endorse sin. So the husband's will is not absolute in that sense. Both roles in marriage are submitted to Christ. Obedience to Christ comes first. Submission is not getting all spiritual strength from your husband. Now, your husband is called to reflect Christ. He's called to lead spiritually. But he's not a substitute for the Savior. He may be a spiritual help and encouragement to you, but your strength must ultimately come from the Lord. And the submission is not living or acting in fear. Fear, intimidation, and abuse are in opposition to love and outside the will of God. So the husband is called to love his wife and not be harsh with her. Respect, submission, and deference are a natural response to a loving husband. They're not forced in fear of a harsh husband. So in light of that, let's look now at the commands to husbands to love their wives. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Notice that there are two mutual and related responsibilities between the husband and the wife. The command is not one-sided. They both come from an inward disposition toward one another, and both sides are needed. They're mutual responsibilities. Anglican minister Dick Lucas said this, How natural to love a loyal wife. And who would not want to remain loyal to a truly loving husband? He continues, Sadly, we easily deceive ourselves in these matters, and men more readily than women. To say I love you has always been conspicuously easy. For the husband, the command sets a high expectation. It requires an emotional investment because it's easy to say I love you. But the calling is to actually love in the way that God calls husbands to love. To make that clear, Paul adds, do not be harsh. It's a particular sinful tendency that appears in husbands. Men, do you want to lead well? You want to assume the role of leadership in your family? You can start here. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Right? It's part of spiritual leadership. If you see a broken wife, look at what the husband's invested in her over years. 20 years from now, will your wife have a sense of security that, and strength that allows her to flourish? To be a vibrant, joyful, and fulfilled person. Love your wife and do not be harsh with her. Don't just say, I love you. Actively desire that good would come to her. And let that guide your actions. Don't just say, well, you know, I'm not being rude anymore. I'm not, at least I'm not harsh. Okay? Actually love her. There's a reason why those two statements are both there. They're, they're contrasting to one another, and there's a sense in which love is a replacement for harshness, but you need to do both. Right? Love your wife and do not be harsh. Love 
does not simply mean to be a romantic. Sure, being romantic may be a part of expression of love towards your wife, but it can be done apart from love. Love does not mean to simply provide financially. Same thing, providing financially may be part of your provision for your wife, but it can be done apart from love. Love does not mean to lust. So these are things that can be done apart from an internal disposition of love. That disposition has to have a genuine care and concern for your wife, and that concern impacts your actions toward her. The loving husband should not need to enforce his authority through strict rule. The husband who fulfills the call to love can avoid the overreach and abuse of hyperheadship. So let's set out a positive vision for what the husband is called to do here. So here's, here's a few examples of what love means. And these are areas where I've had to grow in my own life, and I continue to grow. Right? Never stop turning to Christ for help, and in humility reflecting on how you might grow in grace. Love means to lay aside our selfish desires and seek the good of the other person. Do you seek your own time, your own schedule, your own space? I get it. We all need time to decompress, to relax. But that can be taken to a point that it abandons the relationship and the family. Do you always feel the need to be right, to have the last word in the disagreement? You don't have to always be right. And every issue is not a hill to die on. Love means that you lay aside your selfish desires and seek the good of your wife. Love means to align the life of the home toward God. Do you point your spouse and children to Christ? Is your personal life and your life together propelled by Scripture, animated by the Gospel? What do you talk about when you walk by the way? And I don't mean just following the cultural rules of contemporary Christianity? Does the word of God dwell in you richly? What are you feeding your own heart? What are you feeding your family? Love means to align the life of the home towards God. Love means to care for the needs of the other person. Now, this should be mutual on both sides, but it's a role where the husband can really lead. And notice where I use the word lead here, right? Maybe using it differently than you might expect. Leadership in marriage does have an element of spiritual leadership to it. It sets an agenda and a tone for the marriage. But husbands are called to lead the family in virtue. And love means to care for the needs of your family actively. So if you need to take time to take care of something around the house, do it. Um, If you need to provide, you know, earlier I said it does not mean providing financially. Well, maybe you do need to provide financially. But it has to come out of a disposition of love. Love does not mean, or sorry, love does mean you do what's best for your family because you have a covenantal obligation to them. 
Right? You stay the course because that's what you've committed to do. They're your family. You don't give up when you don't get your way. And you don't let go when you get tired. Love means that you're committed to honor your obligations. Love means that you overlook offenses. And rather than looking at the other person under a microscope and examining every flaw, you both lean into the relationship. You overlook offenses rather than nursing your hurts. And you think the best of each other rather than imprinting upon your mind perceived wrongs. Love means you overlook offenses. And love means that you respond with grace. When tensions rise, when you're tired, when you're frustrated, when you're offended or weary or without hope, you lean in with grace. It means that you're an advocate and protector for your wife and not her accuser. And I'll go back to this as you want to lead well, right? Be the advocate for your wife and not her accuser. See, we live in a fallen world and it is impacted by sin and its curse. Yet our relationships within the church and within marriage are meant to image him. And in that way, they're a refuge in the wilderness for our new life together, and it's meant to undo the curse. And in the context of Colossians 3, our new life is founded upon our relationship with Christ. Colossians 3.3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That if you have believed in him, that is who you are. And that is intended to be reflected in your relationships. And if you do not know Christ, or this hope that we as Christians have in Christ, then I would encourage you to turn to him this morning. Your relationships and your marriage may be a wreck, but there is hope in Christ. Christ came to set all things right, to restore creation, and that includes your life together. So pray for one another. Submit your life and your relationships to Christ. That is God's design. And he gives hope for healing what is broken. So may your marriage be a refuge for you in the wilderness. Submitted to Christ and reflecting his work in you. Let's pray.